This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Welcome everybody to Libri. Quiet down in front of um, uh, Thanks for coming out on a Friday night. It's really uh, good to see each of you here. Um, the, uh, so this is our, uh, third lecture in our series for the summer. I'll just give you a little bit of a heads up in terms of what is coming next. Uh, on June 9th, Esther Dalton, our very own Esther Dalton right there, is going to, um, give a lecture on the Baptized Imagination. This is part four of a series on the Baptized Imagination. This one is called Take Heed How You See. I don't know if there's anything you want to say about that. Nope. Okay. So you'll have to show up for that one. Um, yeah, uh, but tonight we have a, an old friend uh, of Labrie and of my family. Uh, very old. Very old. He's very, he's, he's very, very old. Um, uh, Paul Reuter, you came as a student to this branch of Labrie probably... Uh, 1984. 1984. All right. I was a Swiss Labrie in... Uh, 78 and 80. Okay. And then I switched loyalties. Okay. Good. For the better. That's good. Um, yeah, so Paul, Paul has, has gone way back with this branch of the Brie and with the Kai's family. He um, has spent many years as a photographer, as well as a cameraman, filmmaker in New York City, and has done a whole range of different kinds of work, documentary work. Uh, most of what he's showing tonight is, is, um, is photography. He has uh, many claims to fame, but uh, one of them is... <laughs> He'll tell you all about those things. Now I'm scared. Yeah. He, he did film a 57-hour-long film, one shot, called... Drive. Drive. It's one shot from Manhattan to L.A. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah... It, it took it took about three years to figure out how to do it, but we did it. <laughs> so you can ask questions about that later. But yeah, uh, that's a whole different lecture. <laughs> you guys have to sit here for fifty-seven hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for being sure. here. I really appreciate you being willing to come and speak for us. All right. Well, well th- thanks, Ben. Um, uh, it's it's good to be here. I'm, I'm uh, you know much more comfortable having a camera between me and anybody else so uh i don't i don't i don't do a lot of um, public speaking i usually let a director do that and um but i'm here and i uh i hope that you guys don't think i'm gonna praise selfie sticks because you've come out for nothing <laughs> but uh um i uh, also want to warn you that uh, in 1984 i attended a lecture by laurie anderson at nyu and she said I just talk until everyone leaves the room. I just keep talking. <laughs> I have that. I have that energy too. So just be careful. <laughs> um, this represents my nine-year-old first camera, Kodak Instamatic. Um, I got it around 19, 
uh, 69, uh, and I was so proud. Uh, um, and this represents the, one, the first roll of film. That's my sister there. And um, one of the things you should note is uh, when my mom picked up the film at the drugstore, she was very shocked that I didn't frame things properly, and she was very worried. Um, and so, you know, this is what... This is me here in a very properly framed photograph. <laughs> with, with, and this, I wanted to show this not just to show my family, obviously, but 99% of photographs in the world are basic documents. They, they document a place, they document people, or people in a place. This happens to be not a very good representation of Roanoke, Virginia, but it's <laughs> Roanoke, Virginia. Um, so uh, I thought I'd, I'd share that with you. Um, at, at 10 years old, I found a photography book at the local library, and I checked it out so many times, and I read it so many times, that the librarian suggested to my mother that she should buy me the book because other people were ready to read the book at the library. <laughs> um, uh, in high school, my thesis project in our class was 10 photographs, and they are locked in the vault of history. No one will ever see those photographs again. <laughs> but by college, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I, I ended up uh, in 1983. I was on my way to New York, and my parents suggested to me that I should go to the Liberty Conference. And that's where I met uh, Dick after a lecture, and I thought I was asking him very difficult questions, but... I wasn't really, and but we had a very good conversation. He invited me to Southboro. That's sort of why I'm uh, standing here. Um, I find uh, that um, out of school, basically, um, I became a camera assistant, which is you know supportive. Of, most of the time, I was working. Like all the t I, I worked for two different camera women at the time. But 99% of my business was with cameramen. And a camera assistant is someone who loads film, keeps track of the, the shots and all that, all that kind of maintenance. Also makes sure the camera's in focus at a proper exposure. So I worked, I worked like that for seven, seven or eight years. And I, I was actually, it was actually a great apprentice system because you ended up learning a lot about how to actually make a film. Um, but uh, now I feel like my now there's sort of this, there's a digital revolution obviously that's happened since I started and I feel kind of like my career is kind of I don't know do you guys know the paradox of the ship of Theseus the, the idea is that there's a ship takes off and goes from port to port and every time it, something breaks they replace the part until the whole ship is replaced and then someone builds the original ship and there's the new ship the ship's log is in the new ship so my world is sort of split between film and digital, and I'm, I'm not exactly easy in any world anymore, but I, I have to basically work in a digital world because that's just what is out there for me to do. I did, the last couple of years I have done some film, but it's, it's to get the film look. You know, it's not that you want the final product to be in film, but it's just to get like an old-fashioned look. So they hire the old guy to do all that stuff. <laughs> um, I got my first break in 1997, and uh, someone called me. I'd worked for them as a camera assistant on and off, and between the 
production designer and the director, they thought that I could be a good cinematographer, and it was on a fashion commercial in Miami, and there I was, you know, in a car, going to the airport with all my bags, and shooting a fashion commercial, beautiful women, blah, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> um, and that, that life lasted for me for about seven years, and uh, I traveled all over Bahamas, all that kind of stuff, and did, and really... The cynical people in the film business say, well, you know, shooting fashion models is the easiest thing because they're already beautiful, and all you have to do is have the proper exposure and show up, and everything will work out. <laughs> but it's, that's, not, not, that's not exactly true. Um, but uh, after about eight years, the fashion business was done with me, and that, that, that it, just, it just happens. Like, you're, you're the flavor of the month or you're the flavor of the few years they love you, they love you, they love you until they don't love you anymore And then, but I was, I was sort of over the fashion business too it just, I mean I, I, I did not partake but there was a lot of drugs, this, that, late nights and I just, I was very happy to like give up my Miami I, I, I didn't ever live in Miami but I was down there all the time so I just was very happy to give up that life and I ended up going back to one of my first loves is documentaries, and I found a real haven in documentaries in that you're with real people who have real stories. <laughs> and that, that was what, that's sort of what's attracted me to um, documentary. Um, and then uh, in, I think it was 2010, I got my first digital camera, and uh, I, I really fought it for a long time. Uh, but the business was changing, photography was changing. And I always, in this crazy kind of film business, I always used photography as a personal refuge that I could go out with my own camera, do whatever I wanted. No one was telling me what to do. And I felt really kind of like a solace there. And, 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 uh, and I, every shot I take in my life, I always think is an experiment. What if we do this? What if we do that? What if I do this? What if we do this? So it, it's a way of me kind of exploring the world. And this is, this shot is the first shot I was ever happy with as a digital camera. And my, my wife was the art director. We shot it, um, this was meant to be our holiday card, and we shot it after Christmas. So this is December 27th, 2011, and we sent it out as sort of a New Year's card because we were late. And all my friends loved it, loved it, loved it. She being... Um, Persian, we sent it to all her relatives, and this is this is something about meaning in photography. Pomegranates in the Persian culture are so tied with fertility that people were calling us and asking when the baby was due, <laughs> which is a side effect that we didn't really expect. <laughs> and then, so. That's sort of my history, but like where we are today in photography, obviously it's digital, and then we, you know, obviously in the last few weeks we've all heard about AI and what happens with AI, what's going to happen, and so the biggest questions in photography or cinematography today is who owns the image and who authored the image, and this is something that like is going to be embroiled for a really long time. In the old days, when I took a picture, I had a physical negative. And if someone wanted it, they had to come to me and talk to me. Now I take a picture or I do a video and I send it, 
you know, via satellite or over the web or whatever, however, however you get it to the client, you know, and it can be anywhere in the world. Usually it's London in five minutes. They download it. They have it. But, like, it's, it's so fluid, so plastic, no one wants to necessarily say it's my image. And one of the hard things is that because it's so plastic that people can do whatever they want with the image uh, once, once you send it to them. You have like, no authorship of it after that. Um, this, I don't know if you guys, oops, oops going backwards. I don't know. Do you, have you been following this story in the news? Lynn Goldsmith is a rock, rock and roll photographer. She's amazing. She's from the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s. On. She took this picture of Prince in 1981. Okay? And then Newsweek asked Andy Warhol to do a picture of Prince for the cover. So he took her photograph. He did his... Andy treatment. He got paid a lot of money. She got nothing. All right. So this is this is the kind of like world that we're in. A lot of it comes from Andy Warhol, but it's a world we're in where people think they can do whatever they want once they have your image. And this is in 1981. Now this, she sued, and this went all the way to the Supreme Court, and it's this settled in her favor two weeks ago. This shot was done in 1981. So um, that Warhol had to pay her, the Warhol state had to pay her. But um, it's kind of like Andy thought that if he changed it enough, uh, it would it would it would be his. Now, Sotomayor said, it was very kind of parsing out that when Andy Warhol painted Campbell soup cans or Brillo pads, that was social comment. So he could do that without having to pay. But because Prince is a person, that he would have to pay uh, Lynn Goldsmith. Um, uh, so now, just going further down the line, does anybody know who this is? Yeah, Jim Coke. Right? Yeah, Jim Coke. He, he owns and founded Sam Adams. And he, we did an interview about George, he's a George Washington expert, he, and he studied all of George Washington's brewing and distilling techniques. So he was telling us about it. Now my, my assistant and I spent hours lighting these barrels and making sure he was exposed right. And he came down with a beer in his hand, and he's a brewer at a brewery talking about George Washington distilling liquor to sell to people and the client, who happened to be the National Park Service, said, we have families coming. You can't have a man holding a beer. <laughs> right? <laughs> so this is, this, is, this is the kind of thing that you get into. Um, and what do we do? Now, the, now, I shot this with a very fancy camera. I, I, I'm trying not to do technolo- technology because it's, it's just ridiculous. But I shot this 5K. So they're like, well, we'll just, we'll just punch in on the image. So... This is what's delivered to the client. And they had to, because he's swilling the glass, they had to come up this much. And, and that meant his head was, we call it, when someone is losing hair up there because of the frame line, we call it a haircut. So he has a major haircut. But what happens when you see this image 20 feet across at Mount Vernon, he looks like 
an emphatic crazy man in this shot, where in this shot he looks like a guy holding a beer talking about George Washington, right? So this is this is the kind of thing that happens in the digital world, um, and I'm not very happy about it. I didn't I didn't win my case at the Supreme Court. <laughs> it, now, it's not just digital technology that makes it. It's, there's there's a huge cultural change, in and I think everybody knows it. And I was, during COVID, uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell was ma- meant to give a speech. Uh, I can't remember the name of the tech company. He couldn't do it, so we filmed him doing it, and he talks all about how business was very linear. You had a hierarchy that went down this way, where young people now feel it's very horizontal, and everybody has their say. Um, and I find this in the film business, and... If you think I'm complaining about my assistants, I really am, okay? Um, I had an assistant walk up to a director and tell the director that I think Paul is doing you a disfavor and this shot is terrible and you should listen to me. I've had... I had, I, I had an assistant tell a director that his shot was dumb and it was really stupid what he was doing, and I've had... A, I've had a, right when I was about to roll, I was filming The Billionaire, and we were in his office, and everything was tense. I had an assistant go into the camera and change all the settings minutes, seconds before we rolled, and I would, and I was so busy with my camera, and he was operating the second camera, and I looked over, and, and the image was terrible, and I had to stop, and I had to redo it, and he goes, well, it just looked dark to me, so I thought I should do something about it, and this is... It is a complaint, but this is the kind of world we're in where everybody seems to have a voice. Now, how this fits into ownership and authorship, I know a very famous photographer whose assistant is suing them for ownership because they believe that they added enough to the image that it's actually theirs. So it's, it's a, the, the reason I'm bringing up these complaints is it's a very tricky thing to have to navigate. Um, I'm going backwards, that's why. Uh, hang on a second. <laughs> this brings me to Andy Warhol. Um, I'm not going to talk about his photography, although he was an avid photographer. Um, people call Andy Warhol a watershed artist. I call Andy Warhol a continental divide. There are people who worked before Andy, and there are people who worked after Andy. And he made something that we'll never, we can never go back from. And that's the idea of what art is. Um, he started out in advertising. He started out drawing shoes for advertising. He won all sorts of advertising awards. Then he went into become a silk screener. And if you, if you're, if you want to make it in the world of art, silk screen is like being a corn farmer where a painter is like being a vintner in the Napa Valley, right? So you're, you're choosing the lowest common thing. But he didn't want to get the approval of the elite. He wanted to be a pop artist, a popular artist, and get out to everybody, which um, is pretty amazing. The, the people before him, you know, you see the stereotypical artist in a gala or a garret thinking angsty thoughts, trying to figure out how to get the angst on the canvas, becoming the sole genius. 
and then you go with the opening and their praise for all their work. Andy destroyed that image. He and when he called his workspace a factory, he meant it. It was a factory. He turned out lots and lots of work, and he had lots of people around him, and he asked their opinion, and he wanted to make sure that it was not just this sole artist. Um, He's best known for his soup cans and, and the Brillo pads, which are sort of the Duchamp idea of ready-made. And um, what happened with Warhol is something very similar to photography is that if a silk screen or a ready-made was put into a gallery in China, and there was one in Germany, there was one in New York, one in Canada, wherever, Australia, everybody can look at that image at the same time. And that's something that didn't happen with the solo artist painting the angsty painting. So it, 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 it's a precursor to social media or, or iPhones where everyone can see something instantly. And that combined with his, everybody's going to be famous for 15 minutes in the future, really is the, he's like a prophet of social media. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Um, a young artist, this is, I just want to get to the idea of how the how art and the and what is art changed. A young artist actually, we interviewed this. I did this documentary about Andy Warhol a few months ago. A young artist came to him from Europe, and he got off the plane and he says, "The thing that I want to do is I want to go to the factory and I want to meet Andy Warhol." And he did, and he had he had fifty dollars in his pocket. It wasn't very much money. He couldn't live, and so Andy Warhol said. Well, what are you going to do? And he's, the kid's like, I, I don't know. And he goes, I'll tell you what to do. Go to the poster shop down the street, buy the knockoff Andy Warhol posters, and bring them back to me. So the kid bought, he spent $10, he bought like four posters, and then Andy Warhol signed them all. Now the kid went out and he could sell them all for like 100 bucks, right? But that's not the story. The story is Andy Warhol sort of sticking it to the art world and saying, anything I sign is art. And that, that's how things have changed. Now, um, I'm kind of giving you an overview of who I was now, and I want to bring in three. I could bring in like 90 people, but I'm trying to focus down on the three people that really influenced my work. Um, three photographers. First is Richard Avedon, um, and I was able to work with him on a documentary that PBS did about him in 1995, and that... That changed a lot for me. That changed, like meeting him, seeing how he worked, changed a lot in my head. The second person is Stephen Shore. Stephen Shore is one of America's best photographers, and somehow I got the call to go video with him, and he was directing and I was shooting. And couldn't be a nicer man. And I just want to say that I called up Stephen Shore before this lecture, and I'm like, I don't shoot. I don't. I don't talk about photography, and I'm having trouble finding high res photos and like making sure it looks good on the screen. So like, I, like, what do you do? He goes, here. Here's my office manager. Call her. Whatever photographs you need, I'll send you high res. So we have to thank him for sending. When you see the Stephen Shore stuff, you have to thank him for doing that. Um, but the first person I want to talk to is talk about is Eugene Age. He was born in 18. 18- 57, and he died in 1927. He started shooting around 1898. He lived in Paris, 
And what's interesting about him is that he um, just wanted to, he thought he could make a business out of taking pictures so that people who were doing theatrical backgrounds could paint from his photos. And the more he photographed Paris, the more he became obsessed with photographing Paris. And the first time I looked at his work, I'm like, yeah, well, what's the, what's the big deal? And, you know, it's like, it's this Paris, you know, it's like this romantic Paris. But when you, st- you can't see it in this lecture tonight, but if you ever study any of it, just go online and look at this stuff. It really starts, it's like a magnet. It starts drawing you in. And he did a lot of photography at six in the morning. You have a lot of mist. You have a lot of like eerie light. And there's sometimes there's, there's, uh, there's like this, you know, tension about what's going to happen. Some of it's whatever, but social commentary. He, he's really good. He's a really good poet with with the, with the camera. Um, this is a shot I took in Vermont. This is not typical Vermont, but I I just like it because I think it's it's about what happens to dreams sometimes. And this is this is at six o'clock in the morning. It's very consciously trying to do and as a picture. With you know, it, when you see his, you'll realize this is. This is Maison de Balzac. This is where Balzac lived in Paris. And it, it's just sort of like these haunting... And anybody who's... At, I don't know if anybody is a photographer or whatever, but anybody who ever tries to take a picture of a building or an empty square or, you know, an abandoned space, my hat's off to him all the time because, you know, I, 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 try, I try to do something that's really poetic and there's no one around. Really, really difficult. <laughs> So this is this is why this is why he gets into trouble thinking you know it's like kind of this typical barges in Paris, but you can kind of see the steam. This is kind of like this eerie, you know, walkway, and you have these really dark foreground image, foreground buildings that kind of allude to maybe something not so nice. Mo- a lot of what he was photographing was going to be raised for the modernization of Paris. Mm-hmm. So he was on this mission to get it all in his camera before it was gone. Mm-hmm. He, when he died, he had 9,000-plus glass negatives in his, in his studio. And the negative is this big. Wow. Wow. So, um, that, so this, is, this is like a very typical acute angle street. That this is sort of very typical of what he does. Um, and this, this is just, if you can't, oh this is the translation is hell, right? This is some sort of weird nightclub, maybe, who knows? But, uh, I did, but he, he just had this curiosity about everything. Now this, this is just my favorite in a way because this is not a tour shot. Can anyone know why it's not a tour shot? Because the Pantheon in Paris, you can't see it. It's half hidden by the street. And it's, you know, the tourists would be, like, in the middle trying to get it. But he he tucks it over the side so that you have this curiosity. You kind of want to lean in and see if you can see around the corner. Um, And this is just, the next one is just a joke. I just love this. It's like, you want to see Notre Dame? I'm going to show you a tree. (laughs) And and just a lot of his stuff is window displays and, and things that, like, just typical... Paris at the time. Historians use his stuff. Filmmakers use his stuff as reference. Um, and he did he did some he did some of his work with the the Romani the the gypsies and this is sort of a gypsy hovel I think. 
Um, but uh, I would suggest to anybody to like go and see. Um, just go look him up, find a book on him. Picasso, Matisse, and Man Ray both all were fans. Man Ray, uh, Man Ray put a one of his pictures on the cover of a surrealist magazine. I couldn't find the cover. I would I would have loved to see it. Um, it's just the pleasure that he had doing these photos is quite amazing. This brings me to someone I met. Um, but first, we're going to go back to Andy Warhol. This is obviously Marilyn Monroe. Um, and Andy was into repetition. He did a lot of repetition. A lot of people think that he was on the spectrum because he lo- loved repetition so much. But... Andy grew up in the Eastern, not Eastern Orthodox, but Eastern Catholic tradition. But when he went to, he went to church, even in his clubbing days, he went to church every week. Um, He went to church with his mom at 8 in the morning on Sunday. And he grew up with icons in his church. And experts are are really kind of saying that this sort of flat image of all these American stars that he did, he's, he's really trying to make them into religious icons. All right. So, but and you you get this kind of smoky eyes, big lips, Marilyn Monroe that we all know. Now, Avedon did this shot of Marilyn Monroe, and it took him. He said when when I talked to him about it, he said it took all day, and he he kept shooting film and film because what he was getting was that, and he didn't want that. He wanted to see who she was, and finally. She was tired, and she he said she she let down her guard, and he got he got this photograph. But this is this is like a typical Avedon, never sort of giving up on anything. Um, the next slide is Avedon's shot of Andy Warhol. And I, I don't know if you know, like in 1969, I can't remember the year. Andy Warhol was shot by a disgruntled employee three times. Oh. And he went to, he almost died on the table, and he was sickly the rest of his life. Now, Avedon really wanted, Avedon is really into to this kind of, you know, imagery about death and fear. And this is, I, I think it's a fantastic picture. And I, in researching, or just kind of looking at these photographs for this talk, I, I, didn't, I didn't get what he was getting at. It's always sort of perplexed me until I found this shot, which is an outtake of of Andy. And to, to kind of see what's going on here, I it's 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 a Jesus put 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 your fingers in my wounds. But Adonai didn't choose this one. Oh, I, I'm sort of glad because it's a little heavy-handed, I think. But when you go back to this one, you kind of understand. You get a lighter feel for what what's going on. Um, before I got to go on with Avedon, I want to talk about some. I'm going to skip skip to a whole different topic because it, it relates to Richard Avedon. Is that I want to say that every artistic urge. This is controversial and everyone will be upset with me. Every artistic urge is an acting urge. And I know there's people here in different disciplines, but when I explain myself, an actor wants to embody somebody else. It's not just playing a role, but they want to 
be inside someone else's shoes, feel what they feel, know what they know. And if you if you kind of take that as like an acting urge, you go to like music, like country music that you've got to play the same song 150 times a year, and you have to you have to get into the character. Writers have to get into all the characters' heads to get it down on paper. But the idea is that there's this this, this urge. It might you might not want to call it acting, but there's an urge to embody and to understand. And no one does this better in photography than Richard Avedon. And Richard Avedon, countless interviews, will talk about his fear of death, will talk about his fear of his manhood, will talk about his pain, his vanity. And working with him for the week, I saw the vanity. I saw I saw the pain and the fear, but I also saw humility and I also saw curiosity and I also saw like love of mankind. He was so afraid of death that when his father was dying, he decided to face his fears. And there's, I don't know how, there's public, he, he spent the last five weeks of his father's life just taking photographs. And the last photograph he took was of his father on the morgue table, which is pretty gruesome. But this is Jacob Avedon about a week before he died. And this is, uh, and Avedon was, Avenon was really talking about like the light had this is almost more powerful than the death photo because the the light has gone out of his eyes. Uh, now Richard Avenon is known most for his fashion work, alright? Um, and I'm gonna show you this picture which is not a Richard Avenon. This is picture by Horst Beat Horst. And he was an amazing fashion photographer for his day. And this is not representative of all his work. This is this is a this is an exaggeration so you guys get the point that before Avedon, it was all about Grecian goddesses. Horst did a lot of like data and surrealism in his pictures, but it was the the woman was basically made out of marble. Alright? And then when you get to Avedon this is what you get. You get this amazing idea of movement and structure and and like this this flow and this energy that you I mean really like look I mean right. <laughs> so how did how did Avon get this stuff? And it, it, it and this is the, this is the thing that you know me as a photographer, like, how do you, how do you get there? And I'm, I'm always a frustrated fashion, I always wanted to be a fashion photographer, but I'm like, I'm just, I love humanity too much to, to be certain that artist. But I was like, how do you do that? How does he do that? And this is how, this is how he did this. Right? He is trying to use, like, a big bad wolf idea to, to, to get her into the idea of sort of like core pain and fear and this kind of thing. But I would present to you that one of the one of the things that happens in fashion photography is that beauty always wins, right? And you, you can be the big bad wolf, but you can kind of laugh at the big bad wolf because you're beautiful, right? <laughs> um, now, let's see, where's... Oh, here, here's another here's another great idea of flow with Avenon. I just love this picture. Um, and then this 
is probably his most famous fashion picture. But you have, you still have the same themes. You have wild, untamed beasts, like you know, untamed emotions, untamed things going on. Are they going to attack? Are they not going to attack? But then you have this amazingly serene woman who is not fear at all because she's beautiful, right? And this is why I think, as much as Avedon wants to tap into the primal urges of man that it sort of fails in a, in a, in a different way. And I can't talk about Richard Avedon without talking about Irving Penn. I don't know how much you guys know about fashion photography, but Irving Penn, they live parallel lives. They often use the same models. They often did portraiture of the same people. And I could have chosen Irving Penn, but I didn't know him that well. I, I met Avedon. I'm much more influenced by his work than Penn, but Penn was amazing. So this is I just wanted to throw this. This is what Penn was doing at the time, just just to kind of give you a feeling. So Richard Avedon is a portraitist. Um, I, I couldn't get all of I couldn't get all high res pictures of the ones I wanted. So, but I think the Janus one is great. Um, and then this this is picture of Truman Capote and. Avedon went down with Truman Capote and he photographed the two people who murdered the boy in cold blood and all this stuff. And he had a lot of pictures of Truman Capote. They were friends. And just so you, sh- I just show you this. This is Irvin Penn's Capote at around the same time. Just to give you an idea of sort of the, diff- the different styles. Now, Avedon got into trouble because they're like, you're just a you just you just take pictures of he, he so many celebrity photos you just take pictures of celebrities it's not really portraiture so he wanted to end the argument so in in 1981 and 82 he went out west with his big view camera with big negatives and he just found drifters homeless people and he took pictures of them and this is um this is a roughneck from like an oil rig um, and uh, this is homeless woman I think I, can't, I and this this is um this is a beekeeper oh. and then he Avedon couldn't get the shot he wanted so he had whatever kind of hormone or whatever and he, and he painted this guy so the bees would be attracted to him oh my and this is one of the this is one of the this is it, when he came home and he had the show it was kind of an amazing show everyone loved it and the art world jumped on him for stuff like this, exploitation of the poor, that he faked this. And so, like, his whole idea of going out to the West and taking pictures of real people sort of backfired. Um, and I forgot to mention that you probably picked it up, but Warhol coming out of commercial uh, magazine world and Avedon coming out of the commercial fashion world were under the same kind of scrutiny by the, the art elite. That they just, they just never, whatever happened, they would never stack up to be a real photographer or a real, um, uh, portraitist. Um, now, one of the things Avedon told me, and I, it, it sounds a little strange, but just follow me. He's like, I don't understand. He's, he was like, he was emphatic with me. He's like, I don't understand why people go around saying, people put on masks all the time. You don't know what they're thinking. They're, they're hiding themselves under their masks. He said, 
No, it's not like that. The face is the naked organ. It's what we present to the world. It's how we want. It is naked. It's out there, and we take pictures. That's why we take pictures of people's faces. And it, and it, that is, that has really stuck with me. Um, so, moving on. Do you, this is uh, Edward VIII and Wally Simpson after the abdication. Now. Everyone thinks like a photographer just these people show up and you take the picture, you go home and everybody's happy. This is Avenon was so like his fear of not being good, he had a really big fear of not being good. He went he went from New York to Monte Carlo because he knew that they lived they were staying in Monte Carlo and gambling and he would hang out at the casinos and watch them lose money every night for seven nights in a row. And so he was studying them. And he also knew that they loved pug dogs. So when they came for the portrait, as he was setting up the camera and futzing around with his assistants, he said to them, oh, a terrible thing happened on the way to the studio. I was walking down Fifth Avenue, and just as, just as this woman stepped out with her pug dog, a car hit the pug dog, and then, boom, he took the picture. <laughs> now, but but you can say that's unfair. You can say it's unfair. Right? I, I think it's a I think it's a little unfair. But but here, it, just th- this idea of this royalty and privilege trying to hide their disgust of the story is is pretty amazing to me. So think of, think about it how you want to think of it. <laughs> now. This is next shot is not an Avedon. This is a this is a Paul Reuter. <laughs> but this is this is Don, and this is this is like a direct. I just wanted to put like a direct uh, influence because I, I've known Don for a long time, and I got him talking about one of his favorite sub, subjects to hate, and I got that picture, which I think is pretty great. <laughs> and then the next the. Next photographer is Stephen Shore. Stephen Shore, wonderful man, really smart. He um, he was the first person ever to have a color photography at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, when he was 14, he started taking pictures when he was 10 or whatever. He called up Edward Steichen, who was a giant among photographers, who was the head of MoMA's photography department, and he said, I want to show you some pictures at 14. And he got on the train, and Edward Steichen said he'd never, he, guess he'd never had a 14-year-old call him before, he said, sure, come in. And um, Steichen ended up buying three of his prints at 14 for the museum. At 17, he made a film called Elevator, and Andy Warhol saw it, and said, you need to come to the factory and take pictures. So he spent, he dropped out of high school, he spent the next three years hanging out with Andy Warhol at the factory, taking pictures of Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and the various people who came in. And then he kind of, he's the smart enough person to know that his time was done there. And he left. And he got in his car with his big, giant view camera, and he traveled around uh, the country living in tiny motels, taking these amazing pictures. And that's how he got the show at MoMA. Now, this is one of my favorite. And I, I really believe that this is like a post-Warhol because it's not just social comedy. It's, it's very witty. You know, it's not just like, oh, there's billboards in front of mountains. There's a billboard of a mountain in front of mountains. 
And just he he was so he was so poor that he could not because the eight by ten negatives are so expensive. He could only take one picture of anything that he decided to take a picture of. So he he learned his framing is exquisite. I when, the first day I worked with him, we went to interview somebody, and he kind of put them in the couch on a couch in the corner, and he goes, "What do you think?" I said, "I don't think that's very good. I think like in an interview." You need space behind the person, space in front so that it can breathe and you can focus on the face. If you put someone on a wall, it just doesn't work. And he's like, he's thinking about it. I'm like, I just told one of the greatest photographers that his idea sucked, right? (laughs) And then he goes, no, you're right, you're right. So we went out, we set up the camera, and I set up the camera with this beautiful shot, got everything ordered, and I said, Stephen, what do you think? And... The most humiliating thing happened because he didn't like say, "Oh, the camera needs to be like way over here." He just he took the camera and he went just this much, and I looked at the frame. I'm like, "That's so much better," <laughs> and it just makes me think like when you set up a shot, you just have like you have to concentrate on not just getting a good shot but the best. That's that's and this is um, th- this is another shot of his from Uncommon Places, uh, the same sort of tour in his car. But obviously, very dated, not just the car, but the, the restaurant's name and all that stuff. But I just, I just find, and this is, the jiggering of the framing is, is, is something that couldn't have happened even 20 years, 20 years previously. He really, the framing is just kind of amazing and, and, a, and a very new way of framing the picture. Now, Stephen told me he was at a party with Ansel Adams, the great yeah. photographer, when he was a kid, and Ansel Adams was old, and he said, Ansel Adams was on his third vodka that was about this big, and he was drinking, and he said to me, you know, the first 10 years, kid, I did some good photography, now they're all pot boilers just so I can sell them. And Stephen looked at him and he said, I don't want to be you, right? So he he's consciously... Hmm. Every he's taken his life as long he's eighty four. As long as he lives, he's taking he's taking his life in ten year chunks and working on a theme for ten years. And then the next ten years and the next ten years. And it's it's actually fascinating because he doesn't want to be stuck in the the sort of Yosemite Ansel Adams thing. Now here's his same from Uncommon Places. Really amazing. Obviously LA couldn't be anywhere else in the world. <laughs> And he got this developed that night, and he was very proud of it. And then he looked at it, and, and he, he was sort of kind of like shocked. He said, I was trying to do something very modern, but you can see here, the, the sign is like a pediment. And if you look at any kind of ancient painting, they always have some sort of pillar with something sticking over a cloth. And he says, I, I'm just doing what everybody's been doing for hundreds and hundreds of years, and I, I don't want to do that. I want to do something new. So the next day, he went back, and he did that. Whether you like it or not, he's trying to mix it up and be different. So after that, he got... After, one of his next phases was landscape. And this is Judea, um, Israel. Um, there's some... Uh, there's some really fascinating ones in Montana. I, 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 I like this one a lot. I like it, the, the plainness and the the horizon line is in a really interesting place. It's usually you put a horizon line here or here, but you put it up here. 
Um, and then, in, now that he's 80, he decided that he's going to get into drone photography, and he flies a drone. Um, but this is hard. This is hard to see. But if, 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 if you can come up to my computer later, and a little, little bit better. But it's it's a campsite in Montana. He owns a house in Montana. It's a campsite. But when you start looking at the plastic trailers, and uh, it's just and he, obviously the design, uh, it's just incredible. Uh, um, so I just want to get into. I'm going back into the sort of modern era. This is a graph from 2012. This is 1970. There were about 10 billion pictures taken. That's when I took the picture of my sister. This is 2011. And the graph just keeps going up. This pink is analog. That means film. This is digital. This is when the iPhone came out. right? And this is also about the time when digital photography got to the point where professional photographers were using digital photography. So... Um, and that was uh, approximately 3.5 trillion photos have been taken since at, the, at, at that time since Daguerre took the, captured his first picture at Boulevard de Temple, which is the first photograph of a, of a person in, in, in the town square. Um, now, uh, oh, approximately 10,000 times more photos have been uploaded to Facebook than are in the Library of Congress at that time. Now, 1.8 trillion photos are taken worldwide every year. And by 3030, it will be 2.3 trillion. That means, but now, 57, over 57,000 pictures are taken every second in the world. Um, and this is the world. This is the world that I chose to be a photographer. <laughs> I didn't choose this world, uh, but really. <laughs> um, uh, so you have to be careful of what, how you're doing it. Um, the social media is, you know, all over the place. I really feel like social media and what I do are two different things. But you have to relate relate to each other, um, you know, because what, what's happened with photography, uh, especially with the iPhone, is that we're not looking out exploring the world, we're looking in exploring ourselves, but I think w once you turn a mirror on yourself, then it's very myopic and narcissistic, and obviously, if you ever spend any time on Instagram, everybody's trying to primp like a star and look like a star, and they're trying to be original, and they're trying to be an influencer, but what really happens is that they're the people being influenced because they have to get the likes, they have to, they have to kind of go down the social order of how, you know, Instagram works. And if they do something outrageous, everyone will defriend them. So they have to be in this sort of spot. And um, really what I find interesting about people uh, who do Instagram is, what I call feeding the beast. Once you start posting on Instagram, you can't stop. Because once you stop, people don't follow you anymore. So once you're once you're an influencer, you're stuck doing three pictures a day, or what? How many? How many other things there are? But um, and this is you know goes back to everybody being famous for 15 minutes. Now. What I'm going to say about selfies, this next picture 
it shows the dangers of selfies. <laughs> but I will say it was film. It was not a digital image. It was a film image. Uh, I, fa- I found that in my research. But <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was just Ben's wedding. Um, the there's just a difference between a selfie and a self-portrait, right? I I, I, I really want to make this distinction because it's like. A, People are like, oh, let's do a selfie, whatever. But a selfie documents you. It documents the place. It documents the people you're with. It documents how great you are <laughs> and your best foot forward, where I think a real self-portrait is putting yourself to the camera so the world can see what you think of yourself with your flaws and your sins and your scars. So I don't, I don't know. That was, I was not in a good mood that day. So um, that's the only, that, I think that's the only self-portrait I can find. So... Um, now, without without sort of bashing um, too much uh, social media, I will I will end with a story that uh, a colleague of mine is a director in Silicon Valley, and he does a lot of uh, in-house sort of corporate films for tech firms. And he was telling me a couple of years ago, he got this, I can't remember which camera, he got this fabulous still camera, and he was like showing it off to me, and he was so proud of it, and I was like, that's really cool, uh, we were talking about it, and he said that he made the biggest mistake of his life, is that he went, his children go to the same school as all the big tech people somehow, and he, there was a school fair, and he said, hey, why don't I... Bring my, ca- you know, he put out an email blast. Why don't I bring my camera and take pictures of all the kids? And everyone was outraged that you would actually take a picture. All the tech people were like, "You're not taking a picture of my kid. My kid will not be on the internet." Mm-hmm. And there was a huge outrage, and he said people were actually really mad at him. Um, So one of the things that's different about photography than social media and h- how I think we should relate to photography is, um, is there, there, there's a few ways, but the first way I think is really important is, is um, and it seems not important, but is scale, all right? If you look at a picture like this or you look at a picture, this is Richard Avedon. This is the picture he took. And it's that big. And if, if you've ever been to a Richard Avedon show, I, I was able to be, be at one. The, the picture of Dwight Eisenhower, you know, is this big. And you can walk up this close to Dwight Eisenhower. And you can see where he didn't shave. You know, you can see where he missed shaving. And it just is a different experience because he wants you to look at this person and know this person where you're not going to get the experience with this. And here's... This is an Avedon show. These are... The portraits of the of the, of any, the people at Andy Warhol's factory, and on this side are the portraits of the architect of the Vietnam War. Um, and Ab- obviously, very political. And now this is Avedon's show at the Gagosian Gallery, the the, 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 uh, in, the in the into the American West show. But this is this guy's a homeless guy, and he's getting this much space in New York for people to go look at him, right? And this person too. This, I think this might be. I think that it actually is Larry Gagosian, but I'm not sure. Um, but that just gives you a sense of 
photography and scale. And what I would say is that if anyone can afford it to own art, to own photography, you can go to a gallery, but if you hang something in your and you live with it for a certain amount of time, it just, it changes. It's just going to change the way you look at it and change your appreciation for photography in general. Now, the idea, the idea to me is like, if, if, if there's a glam picture, I call it like, you know, either like sort of on the edge of, you know, bad taste, beauty, kind of porn, or or on the edge of like food porn and you, or whatever, whatever the sort of glam shots that if you hang them in your living room three days from now, you will want to rip them down. Where if, you, if there's a really good picture, I think you live with it and you grow with it. Now there's certain ways, you know, of photographing a person and, you know, you can look on Instagram, you can look in fashion books, you can look in everywhere. But what happens, I think, is that there's only so many different ways you can either contort or pose the human body. But like Avedon, I think the real pictures come from something that is with you drawing something out of the person and in, in, into the into the photograph. And the other the other thing I would say is demand quality, and that that's sort of hard to do because our expectations of quality are falling off so much recently, but if, I, if, if I'm showing, even on my computer screen, people are like, well, what, oh, you know, at work, I hear you do your own photos, what are they like? And I start showing people. When I shoot something with a really high-resolution camera with a really good lens, or I shoot something in film, people are always like, what's that one? I want to know, what, I want to know about that one. They don't want to know about the other stuff. They want to know about the good quality stuff. Mm-hmm. And a lot, of the, <laughs> a lot of the kids that I work with are like, how did you do that? What Photoshop filter did you use? I'm like, it's called film. It's not a filter. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, I, I, I have a social media presence just basically for my clients. I've sort of given up on that, but I have an email list, and I send people my my photographs out on my email list and that's been very profitable because I think people actually open it, look at it, spend more time with it than just sort of scrolling. And out of the last two years I've started selling my photographs for the first time in my life. So it's uh it's 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 kind of uh it's kind of fun. Um and then uh I try in my photo to kind of turning back to my personal I try in my own work to remember the fall because I just feel like the fall of man is something important and I think that like we try to get we try to erase it in a photograph we try to like we try to like not get mussy hair not this not that not the other thing and I I started taking pictures of food and I got so much grief from my friends. Like, you're, what are you doing? You're such a good photographer. You're taking a picture of an apple. Why are you doing that? Like, but I've learned, I, I'm much happier taking pictures of the stuff that comes from the back of the fridge that someone forgot about two weeks ago, you know, that, that's like, maybe it's edible, maybe it's not edible, but there's, there's some, there's, it, it, there's something that speaks to me about that, and I, I, I like that, right? So that's, you know, um, and when I, one of the, one of the things, I think, 
just kind of going back to this idea of everything having to be beautiful. When I when I was a f- doing fashion videos, it was film at the time, whatever. I would, you know, you would be working with the same model for five days. Sometimes you'd work with the same model for two weeks, and you kind of like, okay, I got, I know what you're going to do now. I know the kind of smile you're going to do. And I always try to like change it up. I would like try to find something that connects with her or him to like get it in their head to change it up. And I would say stuff like, we would be on the beach. I'm like, look out to the sea and think that your man may never be coming home. <laughs> and then they, you know, they have this shocked look on their face, but then they kind of get into character and be all stern. And the director's looking at the monitor, Paul, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do that. And I just realized, like, I break the first rule of fashion is, like, never, like, it's, it's all about the beauty. There's no, there's no, you know, drama. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I will say that um, I don't have the cachet of Shore or Abaddon, um, and that might be actually a good thing. And I just, I really want to take two minutes to say that I'm an artist, I, and I fall, I fall and pray to a lot of the stuff that, a lot of the vices that artists fall prey to. And I, you know, I have struggled, as you can see from that photograph, I've struggled with depression for a long time. And, uh, but my work is a way of, getting over that um, and uh, I feel like um, one of my I don't, I, don't, I don't like to say favorite verse in the Bible you know because that's always I think it's a trap but one of the most meaningful verses in the Bible is uh, Romans 12 2 and the idea of transforming our minds into new minds um, and that I know what that means in my spiritual life and I really, not 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 to be blasphemous, but I really want to take that. I, I try to take that into my, to my work every day. So trans, don't think like everybody else is thinking. Think, transform my mind into 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 what that is. And I think uh, that's the important thing to do. Now I'm I'm gonna, I'm going to show you some of. Uh, oh, I was going to say. Speaking of scale, this is a picture I took in France of the salt works and the salt marshes. Um, and it's a system of these evaporation pools, and then these, the ones with these little lips, these guys rake, this is piles of salt. These guys rake it in. And then some of the salt rises to the top of the water, and they have a little thing that scrapes it off. It's called fleur de sel. That's the more expensive stuff. This is the sal gros. It's the gross salt. Um, best salt, best salt in the world. I, I love it. But I just want to say that I had a client buy this from me, um, and it's this big, and I was so happy. I was like, "Yeah," I was thinking they would want it like this, and they're like, "No, we want it four feet across." I'm like, "Really? I'm so happy." <laughs> Full disclosure: you, Andy Warhol has woven his way into my talk, and I'm maybe, maybe sorry about that, but. Full disclosure, I have to say, you don't even know how much Andy Warhol. This is my living room. <laughs> and I live in a family apartment, so I don't get to choose the art. So uh, Chairman Mao has been in our dining room for 20 years, more than 20 years. The only time Chairman Mao came off the walls when we got married in that room, because my brother-in-law said he couldn't have a godless dictator. <laughs> now, this is... This is a lovely, this is my, I, I call it my, you know, Bon Appetit gourmet shot or food and wine. Like, I, I did it. I did that. I, I did what the, what the magazine would accept. 
Um, and it, I, I kind of feel like that's not what I, that's not where I'm going. So I'll, I'll show you some of the I'll show you some of the food stuff that I've done. This is a banana that was in our freezer for. <laughs> And it has this Andy Warhol reference with the velvet underground, obviously. But this is this is where I grabbed it to take it out of the freezer. <laughs> and this is um, this is cabbage. Uh, and then um, this is this is my garlic clove. Like someone stole a garlic bulb. Someone stole a clove already. And then this, the next shot is just beauty. And I just I I went to the farmers market and I just knew like I'd sometimes. Stuff speaks to me, and I knew this is the uh, oh wow the mushrooms. And then um, I was at a market in France this summer, and this came up. This is fennel, but it doesn't really look like normal fennel. And I saw it. I'm like, I need that one. <laughs> but and I will say that most of the food that you see here has already been eaten. <laughs> the mushrooms were great, <laughs> and this um, this is my this is my favorite pomegranate shot. And it, 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 it's, it was in the you can see how the outside of it is all crusted in, and it was, it was in the refrigerator too long. But yet the fruit, the seeds are. And here's another back of the fridge shot. <laughs> and then I, I, I have a whole bunch I experimented uh, with packaged food, and I won't show. I, I had I, I had pig's feet and all sorts. I won't show you all that stuff, but I just want to give you the idea that like I, there's a whole series like this, which I think. Is is a little bit more political, and I, I have I have to get my mind around how to, how to make it better. Now I want to get into my portraits if I can. So I, I think some people might have seen this one. <laughs> I love that shot. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then um, this is Bijou. She's a, 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 a she was I think 17 at the time. But I just love, I, I just, I feel like this is a successful photo because of the little smirk in her eyes. Yeah. And she's a very impish, like, 17-year-old girl. And then this is her mom, Sarah. And I just think, like, that is a face. Like, you don't want to deal, like, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that face. <laughs> and she's, I mean, she's so beautiful and strong. Now, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, I was like going nuts and I was riding around Brooklyn and all sorts of taking pictures in all sorts of crazy places and I ran into this woman who was a street preacher named Sylvia. And that's Sylvia. And as you can see, Sylvia's had a pretty hard life. Um, and I was in contact with her for a while. Semi-homeless. Been in prison and lots of, lots of other things. Now, the next shot is of a model that I worked with. But I, I really feel like it's a portrait um, because this is how she came in the door. Um, and that's that's her lizard. And she asked me to have a special light to warm. It was a cold day, obviously, so she wanted a special light to be turned on for her lizard. And she she basically said, "This lizard means more to me than any man I've ever met." So you can t- t- take care for what it's worth. <laughs> And then um, the super, the super next door, uh, Jamaican guy, where I lived in Brooklyn, um, uh, and my kid, my kids knew him, and he was he was a little bit off, so I didn't always want my kids to like be playing with him a little bit. But 
they remember when I was taking the picture. I can't do the Jamaican accent, but he says, if I see this picture on the internet, I cut you. <laughs> and what I posted it the next day. <laughs> I wasn't so afraid. Um, this is a colleague, Jenny, that I work with once in a while. And uh, I don't know if it, you guys probably, I don't know if they're in Boston, but they're the little huts that restaurants built in New York on the streets during COVID. There's some remaining. So I just thought it was, she she has a lot of mystery in her life, so I just thought it would be interesting Mm. to put there. And then, this isn't actually a portrait, portrait. Um, I was was lucky enough to work with two Elvin Ailey dancers. Um, I just, I kind of think it's a portrait because as a dancer, she sort of breaks the third wall and she references me in the camera. Um, And then when I was in the salt marshes, I was taking pictures and I turned around and these two guys had these French horns. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I didn't know, in, in some parts of France there's a tradition for groomsmen to play hunting horns at, at weddings and they had to go practice because their natural horns are so velves, so they were out practicing and let me tell you, the wedding should have been postponed. <laughs> this is a a, a, a brother of a friend of mine. Um, he's since died. Um, he had Crohn's disease, and at, at this time, uh, the doctors estimated that 0% of his intake was from food. So he, he was just sort of sitting there, miserable, waiting to die, and he had he had to supplement his, obviously, his nutrition. But it was, he, uh, as you can see, it's not... It was a beautiful house in New Jersey. It just he, he sort of turned it into that. This is uh, I just I love this shot. It's not it's not a portrait portrait. And I will tell you this this man is an MIT engineer. Just so you know. <laughs> and then um, corporate portraits. Corporate portraits are um, something I, I that I'm asked to do now a lot. Um, and they are super hard because you probably do the interview before, and then they then they leave you three to five minutes to do a portrait. And it and this is this one is I don't know do you know Dion von Furstenberg, the, the fashion designer? We we did it with her, and she chose the background, so she's got the gray, the white, and the black, right? And so she did she set it all up like that, but. She, she's basically saying, why, it, why are you taking my picture and not somebody famous, really, is what, in, in, in the middle of my photo session, she just got up and walked away with no explanation and left. <laughs> this is, uh, I don't, do you know Ferragamo, the fashion? Uh, he, his father started out in shoes, and now he's the head of this multi-billion dollar corporation, family corporation. I just found it funny that we interviewed this fashion mogul who has billions of dollars in suits hanging all over the place, and it's just like he's got this kind of wrinkly suit. Um, but, so, so you have this idea of corporate portrait, and I have two minutes, and I would just take the next couple of minutes to explain that I have a friend, people know him, Dean, and he's a muralist, and uh, he, he's brilliant. And I, I feel, being around him, taking pictures of him working, he has a really great, if you can call it a corporate culture. He really, he has, 
he, it's not just employees. He has artisans working with him, and he treats them like artisans. So I went to take. He wanted a picture of his team, so I went to take. And Dean is a bunch of Dean and I just crack each other up all the time. So that came through, and I just I just find these pictures so uh, refreshing compared to like sitting there without a gray seamless or you know gray seamless or whatever. But so this is one one this is sort of the opening one. One of his artisans has all these brushes and just paints and changes. So and that that's Dean. <laughs> And then this is one of his. This is what one of his employees wanted to do. This is like lots of fun. And then she's like this. And then, and just that. And then the last guy wanted to kind of be menacing. So he has, <laughs> he has this tool. And I, um, I'm kind of getting to the bottom of. I'll, I'll just do some COVID. This is. I took this. My kids go to a French school. This is Mardi Gras. Um, and I, I just, I just, this is this is the most recent thing I've really done, and that's the music teacher starting the parade. So um, during COVID, I was totally bored out of my mind, and my wife didn't really want me to go out on the street, but we kind of worked out a deal. Um, and I, and I, uh, I, I, I always had this idea that I wanted to go out on the snowiest, wettest, coldest most miserable night of the year and follow around all the, the sort of immigrant labor that does food deliveries to elite Manhattanites. And that's never happened, but I just sort of decided that my focus with COVID with, would be with delivery guys because that was my, that was sort of my thing. And this is in the middle of Second Avenue, which is usually crowded and that uh, and this is how they all dress. It's like that guy is like an essential worker, you know, in, mm. in Manhattan. And I just and this is this is one where I really believe. Like this is, tells the story: of the doorman taking the food from the delivery guy mm. in, uh, late at night, um, checking the phone. Um, can I do a few more? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, okay. So another experiment of mine, talking about the fall, is I. I, I had this uh, one of our trips during COVID in Vermont. I had sort of this revelation. I'm like, I was taking pictures of all these amazing wildflowers, and I'm like, I'm looking at the pictures. Like, why, why is this better than what everybody else does, right? Or why is it? You know, I couldn't make it different. I'm sweating. And I'm like, why don't I take pictures of weeds? No one wants to take pictures of weeds, right? <laughs> so I had I had this idea, it was kind of Genesis three idea, and uh, it, I, maybe it doesn't translate. It's an experiment. I'm throwing it out there. You guys can tell me what you think. But uh, and then um, this one, this is sort of really sort of Genesis three, um, dandelion, and then. I forgot what that one is, but um, and the, the next experiment, if you guys could hold on for a little more, is I always, I always think that I love the beach. I serve the kids love the beach. I always think that the beach to me is like a Bruegel painting. There's just all this stuff going on and families and intertwining, and I, I've never been able to kind of I want to I want take a picture. I do a lot with panorama, and panorama is good. I always think panorama is more of, more of like a humanist camera because it cuts off heaven and hell. It's just what's you know there. Because I, I kind of feel sometimes you need breathing room on both sides. But um, so this is this is one of my attempts at Bruegel, <laughs> and then this one. 
uh, it was not not quite there, but um, and th- this this is this is another picture I sold from uh, this is this is a guy taking off the salt off the pond. Um, I, I actually sold this to like three different people, so it's a big big hit. Um, and then I, I'm just gonna I'll just end with three the three sort of fashion shots that I did. Um, and then this one, and this one. The problem is, is that they're not really fashion shots because I'm not selling you anything, and that you know whatever. But if that's, I was I was thinking that I would be doing more, but I'm not. So anyway, that the, that's it. I, if you guys want more, I can show you more later. But that's kind of the end of the talk. I'm I'm happy to do questions. I just I want I just want to end with one thing: is that in 2004. My wife and I were doing a documentary about sustainable food systems, and it sounds stupid now, but in 2004 it was pretty novel. Um, and we were, we spent, I don't know how many days, we spent five days on a sustainable farm in Tennessee, and there's this really lovely farmer guy, Bill, and his family, and we were talking about junk food and why people eat junk food, and uh, you know, and I thought he was going to say, "Well, it's salty and sweet, and this." And this. He goes, "People want to satisfy their viscera." I can't do it. The Tennessee accent was great. <laughs> he goes, "They keep eating and eating and eating. You think they're going to satisfy their viscera?" He goes, "But they can't. They can't satisfy their viscera. They need something good to eat to satisfy their viscera." <laughs> <laughs> so. My my thing is that we we have you know I think we have living water and we should distribute it right we should we should figure out how to satisfy the viscera uh, I'll, I'll in there oh thank you and I'll end with the American flag of that <laughs> all right Marty should we start with Marty I just remembered quite a few years ago you you telling us. How you were talking about how incredibly difficult it is to photograph food so that it looks good. Like, right. I mean, like for ads for, you know, Wendy's hamburgers or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever. And so that people paid a huge amount of money to make fake food. Food, yeah. They to did. look yeah. like food because it, they could make it look better. Right. Than real food. And <laughs> Dick and I thought about it so often when we drive around or whatever and see, po- I mean, Pictures of food usually look terrible. They just look. They're getting really bad. I think. I think the really state. The state of commercial. They're really bad. But food just, photography in the commercials is but terrible. I really now. like your pictures of food, and you said, you know, you send me a lot of yeah, yeah. the time. But I like your your pictures of vegetables and yeah. Things. But what's is that still the case? Are there are, there, are people you know like no making, no the, 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 there's making it out of. Plaster and stuff no, they're not. They're, 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 some some of that has been taken away with the truth in advertising um, that you have to actually have the real ingredients, and then oh, some see. of that some of that also is, you know, to, if you're shooting a tomato, you need a tomato slice, and you need you need it to roll or something, and like bump into a hamburger and fall over on the patty, whatever, <laughs> whatever however, however they do that. That 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 that's thousands of dollars. It's not. It's not. You're not going to make that for a couple hundred bucks, and people just do not have the budget for that anymore. Yeah, okay. So the, the the budgets and commercials have gone way way interesting. down. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. 
No questions? <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for your talk and all the photos. It's been, it was wonderful. Uh, one thing I have been thinking about and I would really value your thoughts on is um, how now that everyone has a camera, you know, yeah. everyone, or uh, some sort of smart device or whatever, um, any, anytime there's something quote unquote worth remembering or something, yeah. people take a picture of it. So even right. if it's just a sunset or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I've read different things about how that actually helps you not remember it. <laughs> uh, but people have this impulse to take a picture of it. Yeah. Um, I think I think um, you know, I I really I relate to that a lot and I think um, it's kind of like the more you use, you know, Google Maps, the less you know where you're going. You know, because you're not paying attention to where you're going. And I, you know, I, I, I learned that I learned that on my honeymoon. I had like a great camera and it was a great sunset, and I'm running around chasing it. And then I'm like, my wife is sitting over there on the beach. That's my honeymoon. They're like, what am I doing? I should just sit and watch the sunset, right? You know, it, it, you, you get all caught up in it. And I think with the phone, it it it, it sort of exacerbates that. And then one one of the things I was going to say about the, it, 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 it kind of goes back to like ownership, authorship thing. But I was at a, I, I did a picture at a wedding, and I thought about like where I was going to be, and I maybe this isn't quite to your point, but I I knew where to go, and I crouched down really low, and I you know because one of the, one of the things that bothered this this is kind of an amazing device because. You can put the lens on the floor. You can put the lens on the ceiling very easily with a with a with a traditional camera. You can't do that, right? But everyone does this, right? Like ninety nine percent of the people who take pictures are doing this. So anyway, I'm crouching down at the wedding. I take the picture. It's film. It takes a week for me to get it back. But after I take the picture, I turn around, and there's twenty people, like taking a picture of the shot that I found on their iPhone, right? I'm like, all right, whatever. It's, yeah. This is what's going to happen. This is my my life. And then when I sent the when I sent the picture to the bride and groom, you know, and I spent some money and fixed it up and sent it to them, they're like, "Oh, we somebody already sent me that picture, <laughs> right?" But this is the thing. This is the thing is that you, when you when you end up taking the the, the thought, the, there's just this sort of thought that's gone when you end up taking that many pictures. I really think that I, I've. T- uh, you know, I, like everybody else, I was, when I first had that first iPhone, I was obsessed. I had all sorts of crazy things doing with it. Now I'm like, you know, I put it away. I try to have a film camera with me once in a while. And I, it, it really, a, a good picture is much more about thought than it is about sort of snaps, you know. I don't know. I, I, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, yeah, I just want to yeah. so thank you. <laughs> I'm just wondering one thing you, you mentioned several times, just about film, certainly film photography, but also the people that are just you know really dedicated to life to taking really good shots. It's the framing, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's it, which is kind of about composition. Like where, where are the boundaries of this? Where are the the objects of the people that are in this? How is sure. they positioned yeah. in this? And I think one of the things that I've I'm totally guilty of this because I'm not a photographer, but I have an iPhone, you know. Yeah. It doesn't matter really what you do because you can crop it instantly, right? Digitally, right? And have a new frame. You know, you. Whereas if you if you're if you're taking a film shot, it's how you hold the camera, the position you have it in, that dictates what the parameters of that image are going to be. You can't just like unless I mean I guess you could mess with it 
afterwards, but uh, I remember you telling me long, long ago you were, <laughs> we were hanging out doing something, and you were like, no, no I don't crop. Yeah, you don't crop. <laughs> you <laughs> no, take, you yeah. take the right picture. But that, if you, you don't crop it. <laughs> if, you know, if you notice all the Avedon pictures have a black border yeah. around them, that, that that is actually the sides of the negative. And, that, and, and, and at that time, it was very much something you did to show that it was your frame and not a crop. I see. Um, okay. And that, that's very important. And it's, I just, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, when it was filmed, you had to think about exposure and how you were going to light it or you had to wait for the sun and, how, and how, what kind of film stock you were and how sensitive the film stock was, how to set your exposure so you could get a decent exposure. And then you have to figure out your... Your composition, because you know you have foreground, midground, background, but how that all lines up is going to be different in each photograph, um, and you have to think about it. And I just, I just find it sort of offensive that people walk around with a digital camera, ta- and the new digital camera is like 14 frames a second. It's, it's, it's insane. And so you get, you get 100 frames in a few seconds, and then you can pick one that's somewhat, but you don't have to think about it. And the the times I, I will say that you know, Avedon and Shore are really heady thinking photographers. I'm a much more visceral, emotional photographer, and sometimes I do the motor wine, but I'm always disappointed because it, it, that one's okay. That one will do, but it didn't get what I wanted. You know, it, it, it's it's just what it's just sort of the nature of the beast. Uh, just curious, um, just thinking about uh, um, how everything has gone digital, just thinking of, like music, like if you go to Target now, uh, you can't buy CDs, but you can buy vinyl, because people want something that's, you know, they're <coughs> streaming, they want something that's kind analog. of real. Yeah, analog, that they can like touch, and there, it there. does have like an ambiance. Do you feel, do you see Oh yeah, you know, the, 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 the people, yeah, the... <clears throat> Excuse me. I think about four, five, I, somewhere in that range of time, all the twenty-something photographers in New York went back and started buying old cameras, and they—they're they, keeping Kodak in business, you know. They're, yeah. they're, and the, a lot of people are going back analog. Yeah. Um, but not that I see it in commercial work. You know, there, there, there were there were photographers who were still doing film. There are labs in New York who are developing film, but um, most of the people. Well, first of all, the twenty-somethings. It's 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 jewelry. I mean, you go to you go to a party and you have a cool camera around your neck. It's like jewelry, right? (laughs) You know. Um, And and, 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 invited to those parties. (laughs) I don't either. But like, what are you doing? You're going to a party. You got this. What are you going to do with the camera when you get there? You're going to have it hanging around your neck. Yeah, it's going to hang. And they're like, yeah, this is a you know, you know, it's like any any kind of. I I really, I all all my life, I I really you need to know the tech. I hate. The tech talk because it's like, yeah. well, I have the two point one. Well, you know, like, oh my god, we talk about something else. Anyway, the long story short is there, but there is there is an upsurge back to analog and a big one, a big one, and I'm I'm happy about it because I well, first of all, I will say that I I, I ended up doing a lot of digital photography when I got my really good camera, and I sort of left my film cameras, and then I went back and I'm like, I need to do more film. 
And all the pictures came out. They were terrible for about a year. They were just terrible pictures because I forgot how to take. I forgot to take my time. I forgot to think about it, you know, because I was like doing a digital snappy kind of thing. And it took me a while to kind of build back up and remember how. I don't know if it was a year. It seemed like a long time. I get stuff back from the lab. I'm like, this is terrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. <laughs> It's, I, I missed some of the question before. I think that Danny asked that I ran into the bathroom, but it just reminds me of this was probably like 10 years ago when Jordan got married. And our friend got married, and like uh, a friend of theirs is a photographer in LA, and she came up, and I think she took 12 pictures. She's a film photographer. She's a film oh, photographer. Yeah. And she took 12 pictures. And then, but they had a wedding photographer who was a friend of ours, who I think took like. 2,000 pictures that yeah. day. Um, and it was crazy because talking to them later, they were like, Mike spent hours and hours, like days, combing through these like digital pictures, editing it. And they're, they're good. They're fine. But like every one of the 12 pictures is perfect. Right. Uh, and, they but kept them. They kept all of them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, because she was like, and it was like, well, she just has learned like, how to take, like, when, when to, like, she's learned that, the that, craft and the patience or whatever. Like, she has a skill as opposed to just an, a piece that, of equipment. That, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it, it is, it, it is the, you know, the consummate professional of any, any kind, you know, that you, you just, you know, you walk in and you make it easy, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it, ta- you know, I, I'm, I'm that way a bit now. I'm not, not to say I could take 12 pictures at a wedding and all of them turn out great. I don't think I'm that person. But I, I take less and less pictures, and I get the, I get better results. Yeah, you know, I used to take a lot more, and there's a fear of, especially if you're doing an event, which I don't do very many events, but I, I have done sort of, I've had to document events that have a time frame, right? Not not weddings. I, I think I've done a couple weddings, whatever. But the idea is that when you're first doing it and it's digital, you're like. I better have I better have something in the bag at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm I, yeah. The people are counting on me, so you end up overshooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, you now now it's less like I got that, I got that, I know that, I got that, and that I have to do that later, and I, I can kind of go into a room and kind of do a mental thing, yeah. and it's just, it's just experience, really. Yeah, yeah. Sarah. Um, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on your statement about every creative urge is an acting urge. <laughs> the poet I, says the poet. <laughs> well, when, when I'm, um, when I'm, I mean, I, I kind of immediately was like, oh, I think he's right. Yeah. Um, but when you described um, the kind of interaction that goes on between you or another photographer in this portraiture work where you're you're trying to have a truly human encounter with the person that you're photographing to to kind of get them to stop acting in a sense yeah you know to really see them Um, Uh, it's 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 it can uh, i I don't mean to interrupt it can be a really intimate and i'm not talking sexually intimate it can be a real intimate thing and one of the things that avadon also told me was that Every photograph is a gift. Someone's giving themselves to you, and he really means it. I mean, it's not—it's not some like kind of hokey thing that you say, but it's—and I've—I've I've felt that on occasions where 
you're working with someone and you know especially like public figures they have a ma- they have that mask and they have but they they need to have the corporate thing so that their identity won't be but when people get beyond that you know i'll take that and and, and it's kind of it's kind of like what Avedon was doing with Marilyn Monroe is that i'll take a lot of pictures when i know they're that i'm not i'm not there yet mm-hmm. so that the person to either get the person comfortable or feel that i'm i'm happy Mm-hmm. With what's happening, <laughs> right? And and then once they let their guard down, it's like two or three pictures. I feel like I've got it, mm-hmm. and then I go more to see if there's is there something else here, yeah. you know. And it's hard to say like a photographer is an actor, but it but but there's a there's a relationship between a photographer and a subject that's pretty cool, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you have to be and uh, Av- Avedon's big. You know, mantra is like it, just like acting. He's like, be in the present, and that, and that's it's so it's so hard. I'm you know, I don't know. I'm not ADD, but I feel like it sometimes because you know, especially if you if you have to if if, if you're understaffed and you have to bring in lights and you're the only person there and that you 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 have all this technology that you have to take care of, and then all of a sudden you have to be an artist, right? Um, so there's that. So it's a be in the moment is is really when you get the best photographs when you when you're in the moment and you can feel the other person in the moment and and that's just that, and you have you have stage actors talk about that kind of feeling all the time because um, the, the acting can't be in the future or the, pre, the the past it has to be in the present and you have to when the when the other actor says something you have to react to it as though you've never heard it being in the present because you know like oh, I've heard this a million times you can't say that you have to like be in the present. <laughs> Yeah. Just that that last point is really interesting because I wonder whether that's another difference between digital and, and film. Whereas so often we always talk about like the your digital device is 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 this kind of barrier between you and living in the moment because it's it's a way in which we're out, constantly elsewhere. Yeah. You know, this is the way I'm. This is the way I can be in the room, but not really in the room with you. Um, but the way you're describing some of the, these really good portraits really have to be present personally to the person. Right. And the camera the camera's there to catch that moment. Right. When there's some card is let down or something but you, but you have to be quite like person it seems like personally like sensitive and attuned to where this other person is and uh, Right. And that I, I will say that um, I when I'm on vacation or when I'm traveling like the in France and the salt marshes and stuff it's like you know I, I, I I'm a bit of a loner and the, you know my wife is like go go on your bike get out take some photographs go <laughs> right so I go out but my relationship like you we were you know we were in New Orleans years ago and I just I just take, took a picture of a guy on the porch and I, I learned all about his history and after Katrina he had to move to Oklahoma and this and that and this and, this. and you find out all this stuff about people that you don't need and 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 then you're relating on this human level and then you can get the good you can actually get the good photograph right. you know and I just I just I just love that my kids get 
Dad, do you have to talk to that person? He's like, yes, I do, actually. Because <laughs> I'll just strike up a conversation with anybody these days. You know, it's like, so, um, but trying it's, to get somewhere to hurry, it's problematic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes problematic. But yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the human level of it is pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. There's, on my website, the thing that, one of the things I did with Stephen Shore is called Facing Change, and there's a, we interviewed a, it's just, I'm so humbled by this guy's photography, Danny Wilcox Fraser. He's just, he's just an amazing documentary camera person. Spent, spent a long, long time on the Pinehurst Reservation. He's like, he's done, he's gone all over. And he's like, it's just amazing because of this contraption I have in my hand that I can connect with these people. Like he really, like that's his thing, and it really, it's really true. Just, I was just curious. Oh, oh you can. I have asked questions. No, go, go. Is there, I was what saying, is there a story behind this? A story uh, to this picture? Oh yeah, the, the story behind this picture. I didn't put the other one. I, I have another one. My brother-in-law lives near Cooperstown, okay. and uh, in a town called Roseboom. Uh, very, very Dutch sounding name, but. Uh, the farmer who owns this land, um, he is obsessed with John Deere tractors, so every year he has 300 people drive in and drive their tractors in. There's just John Deere tractors. That, well, not only John Deere, but a lot of different tractors, mostly John Deere. So this woman, in 1947, when she was a kid, her dad pulled up in this tractor, and it's been in the family ever since, and she takes care of it, even though it's, it, it's not a working tractor anymore, but she takes care of it, and she brings it to the show every year. That's so cool. Um, I have two questions. The, the address of your website? PaulReuter.com. How do you spell it? R-E-U-T-E-R. I meant to have, like, a handout. I'm sorry. I was going to... R-E-U-T-E-R. Yeah. PaulReuter.com, and... It's mostly video, and I think that Danny Wilk, there's a documentary section, there's a corporate section, documentary section, so I think Danny Wilcox is in the documentary section. Can you spell the name of the first French photographer that you... Oh, oh Eugene is the first name, and it's Ajay, but it's A-T-G-E-T. <laughs> I asked my fr- I, I, I'm taking French, so I asked my French teacher, like, how do you pronounce his name? I have no idea. She says, Eje. Would you spell it again, please? A-T-G-E-T. He's, he's just, I, I just, uh, I just, his, his work is just, but I don't know if you know the, the, the American photographer Walker Evans, who was a big influence on Stephen Shore, and one of the things he said about Ajay's work is that he says they're transcendent documents. They're documents, but they sort of transcend. They get into a whole different realm. And I, I love I love the idea of trans because we we're kind of talking about photos as documents, and this is like a, something that transcends. Yes? Some of what you said makes me think the answer will be no, but I'm curious if you have a wish list of people you'd love to portrait if you got time with them. Oh, no one's ever asked me that before. That's interesting. Um, uh, uh, well, Ben knows who it would be. Tom <laughs> I would, Waits. Tom Waits. I would, lo- I would love to take a picture of Tom. I, I met Tom Waits years ago, and 
I ended up having a, a able to spend a half hour with him, and I, he was just an amazing human being. But um, I don't know. As far as famous people, I, famous people are hard to take pictures of because there's so many pictures of them, you know. Um, and to do it differently, like you know, you, you like the, George Clooney. He's a handsome guy. He takes a lot of great pictures, and he takes a lot of great portraits. You know, da- David Lynch. There's a lot of great portraits of David Lynch, and it would be very... Uh, a lot of people do the same kind of thing with him, the lighting, the wrinkly, the crazy hair, you know, dark background. And so to get something different on a celebrity is really... They don't want you to, you know? It's, it's, one of the things I find fascinating about a character like David Bowie is that he was willing... Like, hey, put on this... These pants that look like a bell. Oh, great! I'll put on the pants that look like a, you know. He he would he would just he would like go with. The, I mean, yeah, there were like these crazy designers that like everyone you know was gaga about. But he was he was willing to go and do do stuff. And he, speaking of acting, he his you know his whole personas and everything. He he really came from an acting place. He was a he was a street performer before. You know, he was a mime and stuff. So. He, you know, but he, so he, in his pictures, I think, really kind of takes on an acting kind of role. But I, I, I would, you know, I would have to get back to you on that. I would, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yes? Uh, you brought up AI and the ways it leads us to ask some different questions or kind of, like, pushes on creativity. So I have a question about, like, more generally about creativity. Because, you know, as we've been listening to the podcast and whatever about AI over the weeks that yeah. you mentioned. Um, the idea that if if AI can imitate what 80% or 85% or 95% of what people can do. Right. And does it change the way we think about creativity? Like you're clearly an expert, clearly genuinely creative. But is, 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 is what's truly creative only that what uh, AI can't imitate genuinely? Or is it... I just, I, you know, I, 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 I knew, I, I kind of knew uh, a question like this was going to come up, right? <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't, like, I, this, all this stuff, I, what, you know, it's been in the news for a, a couple of months, a month, whatever. Um, we don't know what it can do yet, as far as, as far as, if we're speaking photography, you know, the New York Times has the, you know, like, guess which one is real and which one is, you know, Artificial and blah blah blah, and you know, oh, it's impossible. But they're, they're kind of really generic. I mean, like you know, the guy in a business suit, like which one's real? I don't know. They're, they're both fake to me, you know. <laughs> but um, but but I I I think as 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 we it, it, there's so much there, like like I'm talking about the acting urge and 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 and, and talking about bringing people out and there's a connection and really. One of the, and this is, this is going to sound really stupid, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, and it's being recorded. But one of the things that one of the things that someone taught me when I was first in New York and a very angry person, they're like, "You have to do your art through love, or you're dead. There's no one's going to want like if you're if you're coming from an angry place, right? You're you're not going to be able to get to where you want to go. Um, and I feel like. The connection, doing it for love, these are things that computers will never accomplish, as far as I can, as far as I can tell. You know, what, you know, you can get really close, 
And the, the thing is, the other thing, it's, it's not just what the computers can do, it's what people will put up with. You know? I just feel like there's so much bad imagery out there, and people are just like, great, it's okay, let's do it, you know, whatever. You know, I, 20 years ago, I would work three hours to get a great shot. And now if I have 20 minutes to get a shot, I'm lucky, you know. You need an hour? What do you mean you need an hour? We, we don't have an hour. I'm like, I need an hour. That's, that's what I need. And you have these arguments, but what about a half hour? No, I, well, 45 minutes, you know. You have all these sort of arguments, but it's like nobody cares. You know, one of the things that my documentary work is being eaten away by Zoom, because people who made documentaries during the pandemic just had Zoom interviews. And now a certain portion of documentaries are just Zoom interviews because people accept it, because they had to accept it during the pandemic, and it's just a flow-through. Maybe the tide will change, but if you're going to accept a, a Zoom-quality image, you know, what, you know, you're going to accept any kind of artificial AI image. You know, it's like, you know, so part, of it is, part, part of it is the artist, part of it is the audience, you know. Yes? I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this question, but uh, from my viewpoint, I'm, I'm if I'm like if, if I get a good shot, I'm just lucky. Just, I'm <laughs> Me like, too, really. To tell you the truth. So, so, so that being said, all right, yeah. So, um, what was the best shot that you ever came up uh, came up with without spending the least amount of time? Or not just time, but fixturing, setup, all that kind of stuff. Because that's your trade. Yeah. But we all get lucky sometimes. You mean what's the, what's the like? I picked up the camera, took a picture, and oh my gosh, that's great. Not quite, but something like that. My gosh, that is another good question. I don't, I don't know. Because um, that relates to what, or at least to me, because I have to get lucky to get a good shot. I will say. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of an image that I just picked up and shot. Um, mm, I, I, I I don't know, but I, w- I will say that if I have if if I have my camera on me and I have no time, I'm, I'm the the more I practice my craft, the better chances I have of getting a good shot. But I don't like that. That's a good question. Like what? the least amount of time I spent taking a picture and getting a good shot. Wow. Mm, that's tough. I don't know. I don't know. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, going back to the very beginning, uh, I'm fascinated about the, the the single shot film. Yeah. Uh, the first movie I ever saw that uh, in that style was The Ark. Okay. Uh, filmed at the Hermitage Museum. Sure. Did, did, what was the, the film that you did sort of inspired by that? Or? No, actually, um, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, but the director uh, that I worked with, who's, who's a really good friend of mine, we, and we, we knew each other before, but the project really sort of bonded our friendship. The director I worked with had a lot of Warhol connections. He did a, he did a film about the Warhol person, Candy Darling. Um, and... Uh, I always thought in the beginning, I was, you know, I don't know if you know Andy Warhol's eight-hour film called Empire, and it's just a shot of the Empire State Building. I don't know if 
this is on your radar. Uh, it's, and you can go watch it. it would, sometimes it shows, and you can kind of walk in and out. Um, but I, I kind of, in the beginning, thought it was much more about that than anything else. But um, the more I got to work with Jamie, the director, the more it, I just I just thought it was he was just. I'm sorry, this is a pun, but driven. I mean, he just this is something that he 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 thought he just wanted to do and. I mean, one of the reasons I relate to, like, Stephen Shore's work is, like I said, we were car camping. I was driving around the West as a kid with my family, and I, I remember scenes like that. And, you know, I never took pictures. I just think that Stephen kind of captured it in a way that nobody else can. But literally for hours driving in the car looking out the window, I was always fa- – I think that's one of the reasons I'm a cinematographer. I was always just fascinated by, like, what was out the window. And I was the youngest, so I had to be in the middle seat, and I had to fight for the window, you know, and all that stuff. Um, but uh, – but, one of the reasons I started, Jamie called me. We had we went out for a beer, and he's talking to me about this crazy idea. And I just, I sort of humored him, and I, he didn't ask me to shoot or anything. Because how, how how are you going to do this technically? And then on my way home, I started thinking about it. I was like, geez, how are you going to do this? And then I just started the the technical puzzle pieces started connecting. But I was like, I just remembered. Going out west as a kid in those long eight-hour car drives, and then I was like, "That's it. This is the this is what the film is. It's that, you know." And I, I feel like it's much more of an American idea, but I, you know, Jamie, I've known him for a long time, and it, and then um, sometimes you just never know where you know, I'll never get a straight answer. I don't think, but <laughs> I can. Um, here, I'll just, uh, see if I can do this. Here. Uh, uh, see, I, I have, uh, here it is. That, that's a still from the film. This is, we're in Texas at sunset. But that, that gives you an idea of what the shot was. It was an 18-millimeter lens at the windshield of the car. We we got a Japanese Toyota van because the drivers the steering wheels on the on the right, mm-hmm. so we could put the camera where an American driver would be. Mm-hmm. And then the Toyota van has this those old Toyota vans from the eighties had those big sloping windows that there's no obstructions, so we could put the camera really close to the windshield. Mm-hmm. And then I had a special filter built that's eight inches long. People thought I was crazy, and part of it, the bottom half is clear, so you'd raise it up at night, and then when, when you started losing, the sky got too overexposed, I would bring it down, it was a graduated filter, and I'd bring it down to the horizon line, so that, so that we could keep exposure. But there was, a, there was like four different ways I had to figure out how to keep exposure through the nights and the days, and... It got. It got. It, it, I. I was up all the time. I rarely slept because I was always just stuff. <laughs> I don't. That. That. I, I, that quite answer your question, but that's sort of the gist of the film. Mm-hmm. You went from New York to LA through Texas. Yep. We. We decided. Jamie. Jamie drove, drove the route. So. We went south of Chicago down through St. Louis, and then he wanted to really kind of go the traditional Route 66 
which is now, I guess, route 44 and 40. I can't remember. So he really wanted to do that route just because it's like traditional American route. Ben. question just about some of the documentary work. Um, what the role of the cameraman is in a documentary where... I mean, maybe it's different with different different films, but is there someone someone else in the room interviewing, asking questions, and then the, the cameraman is there capturing the response, and then it's all edited so that you don't hear the question? Like, oh, yeah, okay, so, yeah, okay. Playing, interacting with okay, the, so the person? Okay, so what usually happens, the, the Andy Warhol job was different because there were two directors. One was much more camera savvy mm-hmm. and framing... And he and I worked together. And then the other director, Paul, was the interviewer. And he, they, bo- they both knew the topic, but Paul like could hone in on each interviewee and know who he was talking to. But usually what happens, you have a director. Oftentimes in documentary, they're not, they're not visual people. They're book people. They come from, you know, kind of PBS or whatever. And they're, and they're like book smart people. And they don't understand visuals. So it's... And I'm sorry, that's a blanket statement. It, it, it runs a spectrum, but there's a lot of people who I'm the person who's setting the look for the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're the person who asks the questions, and they're, the, they're also the people who know what support footage we need. Okay. Um, and I, I, I do all the lighting, and, and, and I do all the framing. Mm-hmm. And now the um, the... Now, most documentaries, it always used to be one camera, but most documentaries now are two cameras, so I have to set up two cameras and make sure they both look good. Um, And then, uh, sometimes there's there's more than that, but that's basically the idea for the interview, and then that's that's sort of the PBS sit down and talk to somebody interview, and then there's some sort of support footage we call B-roll and run around and, you know, collect that, but... If it's more of a verite job where you're moving with people, yeah. then the camera's on my shoulder, and my job changes. It becomes it doesn't it becomes about lighting. You need lighting, yeah. um, but I w- the verite is something you have to verite cameraman. You have to listen. Mm-hmm. The first time I the first time I ever did a verite job, I was always running after people's backs. And like, and then they get to the kitchen, and then I'm the last one, and there's no room for me. <laughs> and 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 I realize I'm sitting there, and it's like, hey, I'm hungry. Let's go to the kitchen. Oh, and then I'm I'm running to the kitchen. So I get to the kitchen, and they walk into the kitchen, and I'm there. That's yeah. that's that's. So you have the, my job is much more about listening. Right. Um, and that. sometimes, depending the technical stuff, and sometimes depending on how intense the interview is, sometimes I'm not like I'm I'm worried about camera stuff, so I don't always hear. But at, at the end of the day, the directors get a paper transcript of the interview, and they do what they call a paper cut. I want this. And they used to really cut the paper and then paste and glue it onto whatever. So they get all that. They send the, what they want to the editor with a time code, and then the editor assembles all that. Are we done? (laughs) Thank you, Paul. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.
Yes. Are you familiar with um, the photographer William Eggleston? Sure. I was just thinking of uh, just you showing some photos. 